Welcome to the Deep Roots at Home podcast. For those of you new here, the Deep Roots at Home website was founded by Jackie in 2011. As a retired RN, longtime homeschooler, past Lyme sufferer with a love of preventative natural medicinals, Jackie has encouraged women for years now. Our desire is to spread truth and important information during these recent deceptive times, as well as the practicals of homemaking and all things beautiful. Whether you are listening in the car, while you're making dinner for your children, or sitting with a relaxing cup of tea, welcome to the podcast. So welcome to another episode of the Deep Roots at Home podcast. I'm your host, Abby Grace, and today we have a very special guest, Israel Wayne. Now, many of you, including myself, may know Israel from the homeschooling community, and his desire for many years now has been to point parents to raise their children with a biblical worldview. He's a nationally known speaker and author, and Israel captivates his audiences with his enthusiasm for bringing the word of God to bear on all aspects of life. His messages from education to theology to current events take him across the country to challenge and encourage families, which makes it especially a blessing that he's willing to spend the time with us here on the podcast today. His desire today is to do just that, to encourage us, and we're here specifically to talk about his book, Raising Them Up, which was published, uh, when was that published, Israel? A couple of years ago, uh, through New Leaf Press, which is a sister company to Master Books. Okay, so it's been in publication for a couple of years now. Well, welcome to the podcast, Israel. So glad to have you. It's a blessing to be with you. Thank you. Why don't we start out by you just telling us a little bit about your family? How many children do you have? Um, just give us a little bit about a little bit of background about who Israel Wayne really is. <laughs> well, my wife and I are both homeschooled graduates. Our families began homeschooling back in the pioneer days before homeschooling was really a thing. Uh, my family started homeschooling in 1978, my wife's family in 1983. And so we have been married now, uh, just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. We have 11 children so far. Our oldest is 22. Our youngest is two. And so they're about uh, two years apart. We have six girls, five boys. Um, we currently have four teenagers living in our home. Uh, and two two young adults, and so um, we're kind of, you know, reaching all those different levels and ages uh, in the parenting spectrum. So sometimes we meet families, and they'll ask us, uh, "Do you have any children that would be the same ages as our children?" And I say, <laughs> "Yes, we, we do." Most so um, it helps in a way with our ministry being called Family Renewal that uh, we're still very much involved in this parenting and homeschooling process. So. We're in the trenches with everybody else. It's it's not a distant memory on our part. We we live this yeah. every day. Oh, it sounds like we have personally so much in common because I also, we started homeschooling in the mid 80s and it was up in Minnesota where it, there was no law. So it was thought to be illegal. So I remember hiding during school time and um, yeah. So, and now I have eight children of my own ages 25 down to 10 five boys and three girls. So uh, yeah, we, we have similar, similar paths that way. So what Absolutely. inspired you to, you know, start speaking with families and encourage, like, take me back to way back at the beginning of your ministry. What, what were some of the things that led you to start sharing with others? Well, back in my childhood, 10 years into our homeschooling experience, my mother started publishing a national homeschooling magazine 
1988, it became the nation's longest running Christian homeschool magazine. And so I grew up uh, in that environment with um, a publishing family. My mom was an author and conference speaker, uh, wrote books on homeschooling and spoke at homeschool conferences back in the 80s and 90s and so forth. And I graduated from homeschooling in 1991 and was, I guess, one of the earliest homeschool graduates in the United States. And so because of my mom being a keynote speaker at a lot of conferences, people often would, uh, after I graduated, ask me, would you be willing to be on like a discussion panel or to speak to our teenagers about your experience having been homeschooled? and graduated, you know, because we've never heard from anybody who's actually been through the process. And so we'd like to hear from someone who has graduated and to give their perspective. So I started speaking at conferences as kind of a workshop speaker uh, as a teenager. And it didn't take very long until people started saying, Israel's not just a good teen speaker, he's a good speaker. And so by the age of 19, I was actually keynoting conferences myself and have been doing that ever since. I started working as marketing director for my mother's publishing company in uh, 1993, January of 93. So I just finished 30 years full-time that I've been working in homeschool publishing and Christian publishing. And then uh, ten, almost 10 years ago, I started. Uh, I left that publishing company and started a new uh, organization with my wife, my older sister, Sony, uh, who was also homeschooled, uh, called Family Renewal. And I wanted to just be able to uh, kind of get out from under having a 50 to 60 hour a week office job uh, with publishing and to be able to have more time to write my own books and to travel and speak. And so we've been able to do that the last 10 years. It's been phenomenal. We've traveled all over the country as a family, have been able to see most of the United States. I heard my 13-year-old the other day in the living room having a conversation, and he, he said to one of his siblings, I, I think Maine is the only state that I haven't been in yet, you know, so wow. uh, yeah, so he's uh, at least in the continental U.S. Um, so they've had great experiences, you know, being able to travel with me and be part of what I do. Uh, it's given me more time to be able to be with my family more and to uh, actually be more invested in their lives and in the homeschooling process and so forth. So, so I've been doing this for over 30 years now and absolutely uh, love the the homeschool community. I, I don't just speak at homeschooling events. I speak at churches and family camps and uh, speak on a lot of different topics, including parenting and marriage and Christian apologetics and a lot of uh, just do pulpit supply, you know, doing regular sermons on a Sunday. And so I do a lot of different kinds of things besides just uh, parenting and homeschooling. But I think that's how most people probably are familiar with me. Right, right. So the subtitle of your book, it says Parenting for Christians. There are so many parenting books out there. What what would you say makes your book different than, you know, another book that somebody can just Google on in, or find on Amazon? Well, there, yeah, there are a lot of books that are promoted as being Christian books uh, from Christian publishing houses, Christian authors on the topic of parenting, and I read a lot of them. I don't like most of them, to be honest. Um, but what I find that they do is they sort of start from a secular psychological framework. So they're very influenced by Freud or Young or some of the, the Dr. Spock or whoever. So they start with kind of a 
um, child psychology viewpoint, and then they proof text scriptures and they add scriptures in there to try to support their biases and their presuppositions. And so quite often their starting point, their framework is actually anti-biblical, but they're trying to use Bible verses to support an anti-biblical perspective on parenting. And with all the books that I write, I have a different approach where I actually go to the scripture and let the scripture speak for itself. And I want to know what does God say about any topic, because ultimately, if everything is relegated to my opinion versus your opinion, then nobody can be certain of anything. Right. And so the only thing that I'm confident in that I'm certain in is the word of God. So what I do is I study through the Bible. What does the Bible say about this topic? What is a biblical theology of parenting or a biblical theology of education or marriage or whatever topic it is I'm I'm studying? And uh, so that's what I've endeavored to do uh, with my book. I'm not the only author that takes that kind of approach. There are some others, but it's actually a, a fairly small a uh, handful, I think, of Christian authors that actually begin with the word of God as their starting point uh, and work out from there. I think most people kind of draw from their own experience, from culture, from, you know, pop culture, from their uh, you know, psychology degree or, or whatever, and then they try to Christianize that. And uh, so I, I feel like we need to, as Christians, always begin with scripture and have that be the final authority. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. I mean, I totally agree with you. We don't realize how often we're actually coming from a worldly mindset. We've we've got a you know a worldview, and then we try to fit scripture into it, and it's and it it doesn't fit right because we're not we're not renewed in our mind with the truth and having the scripture itself. What does the Lord say as the basis and our foundation, and then it all fits beautifully like puzzle pieces. Yeah, well, I just to give you an example of that I was just speaking um, a couple of weekends ago in Pennsylvania at a church, and I was talking to the associate pastor of this church, and they were telling me that uh, they had a family pastor, I guess. Um, I think that's what they were called in their church, and this family pastor was doing classes, and at one point they were talking about a particular aspect of parenting, and the the family pastor said, "Well, I know the Bible says this." but I just don't think that's practical. So right. I think that's a really good example of how many people approach not just parenting, but all aspects of life is like, okay, I know God says that, but right. you know, we, we, we have to be practical. We live in the, the 21st century. We know more now we're smarter now. And um, I, I just have, have come to the viewpoint that we're never going to evolve to the place where we're smarter than God. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, I don't have that viewpoint. Absolutely. It is no secret that Jackie loves TRS, but some have asked exactly what is TRS? TRS is a nano zeolite spray that facilitates some amazing things. TRS does not heal anything, but it gently clears the body of toxins and heavy metals. So the body can heal itself exactly as God designed it to do. Why not get to the root cause instead of just applying band-aids? Excellent supplements and individual remedies can help, but they cannot help as much until you remove the root source of inflammation and disease. Detoxing toxins and metals is foundational to good health. TRS is safe for the elderly and for children as well. For more information, go to www.deeprootsathome.com forward slash TRS.
mentioned gospel-centered parenting. That's a phrase you use a lot in your book. Can you um, describe what that looks like? Yeah, it's kind of a big concept, but I, I find for a lot of parents, they tend to be very focused on training their children towards behavior. And I think sometimes there's a selfish motivation for doing that, that we want our children to have good manners. We want them to be kind to others, to be respectful, to not embarrass us in public, uh, to know etiquette, that kind of thing. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but I guess growing up in the homeschooling movement myself, I remember in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of people that I saw out on the circuit doing seminars and writing books on parenting. And I was kind of deeply immersed in that because my mom ended up discovering a lot of these voices and, and sort of launching a lot of the big names who became the parenting and homeschooling experts in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and so on. So I knew a lot of these families personally and um, was in their homes and they were in my home. And so I got to see not only their, their stage presentation and read their books, but to actually watch how their ideas fleshed out in their own families. And oftentimes I saw a great disconnect and I think sometimes there's a sense in which if someone can get their children to perform externally and look and act a certain way, they feel as though they've done a good job in parenting. And the illustration that always comes to my mind when I think of this is uh, for families that have seen the movie, The Sound of Music, if you remember Captain Von Trapp, how he had trained his children to respond to whistles. And they could march in the room and they could stand at attention and salute and right, say their names right. and so forth. It was very impressive in that sense that like, wow, this guy's done a great job of training his children. But did he really? You know, as the movie goes on, you begin to see that behind his back, they are being deceitful and they don't respect him and he doesn't have their hearts. And so one of the things that I've endeavored, uh, particularly in this book, to do is to explain how to move beyond parenting towards behavior, which is what I think many parents do, to get to the heart behind the behavior or the motives behind the actions. You know, not just look at what the child did, for example, but why did they do what they did? And then the heart behind the motive and, and then to be able to speak to really the spiritual condition of the child, because ultimately from an eternal perspective, that's the most important thing. And so you know, it, let me let me give you just a quick example. So let's say that I'm in the living room and I'm watching my four-year-old who is building a Lego tower on the floor and uh, his six-year-old brother comes in kind of sauntering through the room. and uh, And as he walks by, he sort of you know, purposefully, not purposefully takes his foot and kind of leans it over and kicks over the tower and sort of nonchalantly walks off like, oh, oops, you know, well, I know what's going on there, right? That was an intentional sabotage of his little brother and he did it on purpose and he did it to be mean and spiteful. And so what I would have done as a younger dad is I would have called him over and I would have addressed the behavior and I would have said, that's not nice. You need to apologize to your brother don't do that again. You guys play nicely, right? That's how I would have approached it when I was a younger dad, because I felt like that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm correcting right. bad behavior. Right. But as I've gotten older, I think I've gained more wisdom and, and gained more spiritual and scriptural insight. I think 
I've seen that that kind of an approach to parenting and even to discipline, it doesn't really address the heart of the child. It doesn't really speak to what's going on on the inside. So what I would endeavor to do now is I would endeavor to speak to the child and I would call the six-year-old over and say, I just saw you knock over your brother's Lego tower. Uh, what motivated you to do that? Well, of course, you only get one answer to that question. I don't know. But I would say, well, yeah. actually, I do know. Right. Uh, what motivated you to do that is that you love your brother. You you love yourself more than you love your brother. And you esteem yourself more than you esteem your brother. And you consider yourself better than your brother. And you were looking for a way to exalt yourself at his expense. And what is that? What is that called? Well, the Bible calls it two things. The Bible calls it pride and the Bible calls it selfishness. And those are both sins. They're not just a bad thing, but they're actual sins, according to scripture. And they're some of the most serious sins. And so does that bother you that you have sinned against your brother uh, and that you, you have the sin of pride and the sin of selfishness in your, your heart? Does that bother you? And sometimes they'll just be honest at six years old and be like, not really, right? And I'll say, well, did you ever think about where that came from? Did you ever think about why you respond that way? And of course they haven't because I'm teaching them, right? And I say, well, the reason that you act that way, the reason that you have that selfishness and that pride in you is you got that from me because that's what I'm like. And I got that from my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents all the way back to Adam, the very first human who rebelled against God and through his pride and his selfishness, sin entered the world. And death came as a result of that. And so what has happened to the whole human uh, existence since that time? And then I'll say, you remember when we studied about Jesus, when he died on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And he'll say, well, to save us from our sins. And I'll say, what kind of sins? And usually he'll be quiet. And I'll say, well, he, he died on the cross to save us from that sin that's in you and that's in me, that sin of pride, that sin of self-love that we put ourselves forward. We consider ourselves better than others. We uh, exalt ourselves at our, our brother's expense. It's that sin in us that caused Jesus to have to die on the cross. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross, because of your sin and because of my sin. Does, does that bother you, that your sin caused Jesus to have to die on the cross? Yeah. Well, what can we do about that? Right. And so this gives me an opportunity to go beyond just, hey, stop doing the bad thing and start doing the good thing to actually presenting the gospel and showing my child their need for Christ and their need for salvation. And uh, I, I have started doing this even at a young age where to some extent, maybe they don't even fully understand all the theological concepts, but it takes repetition. And over time, they will. And, and I want my children to really understand that their greatest need is not merely to be good. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill who said Absolutely. that Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. Right. He died to make dead people live. So Absolutely. my child's great need is not to be good. My child's great need is to see their need for Christ. And it's only when we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made, made new on the inside that we have different inclinations. You know, our flesh only wants to do one thing, and that's love and serve us. That's all we know how to do when we live according to the flesh. And so we need to be made new on the inside. And how can we do that? We can't just make ourselves better through self-improvement and better self-talk. 
we need to be changed by something outside of us, which is the Holy Spirit. And so my my child's great need is really the same as my great need. What what do I do when I see sin in my own life? Well, I run to Jesus, right? And I say, save me from myself. Rescue me from the tyranny of my own selfishness and my own pride and my own desire to sit on the throne of my life and to rule over everyone else. Uh, you know, and the whole universe is supposed to revolve around me. Uh, what arrogance, right? I need Jesus to rescue me from me. And that in myself is the same need that my child has. And so I think as parents, uh, we have to be aware of our own need for the gospel. You know, not just, oh, 25 years ago, I prayed a sinner's prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. But but to really understand that even not just in our justification, but in our sanctification, we need Jesus deeply every single day. And that, as Paul says, apart from Christ, you know, we can do nothing. Jesus said that, of course, in John 15, but he says, you know, I have nothing apart from Christ. And so we have to realize that within ourselves, that apart from him, we can do nothing. We have nothing. Uh, the only good that is in us is that which comes from Christ. And so our, our children need not just behavior modification. Our children need Christ. And so part of what I do in raising them up is I just practically try to help parents to look for opportunities. And, and discipline, I think, is one of the most important ones where we can move beyond training our children merely to behavior to really trying to get to the heart behind the behavior and then to help them see their need for Christ and their need for a savior. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the Von Trapp family, one thing that I have realized in my parenting years is how selfish I can be in my parenting, because if, um, if something inconveniences me, then I'll deal with it. You know, if something looks bad for me, we're out in public, it's, it's, you know, not good behavior, then I, then I will deal with it, probably yes. in frustration. But what about at home when it's not inconveniencing me, um, but it's still, it's still a heart need that needs to be addressed, but how easy it is for me at that point to just ignore it, because then, then it's, it's an inconvenience for me to address it at that point. And that's really selfish parenting is what it is. Well, the scripture actually speaks directly to that in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says we all had fathers who dis earthly fathers who disciplined us as they thought best. But we have a heavenly father who disciplines us for our good. And I think that the reason that that's juxtaposed in that way is to show us that our natural inclination is to parent the way that seems right to us, right? There's a way that seems right to man. There's, you know, sometimes it seems right in our eyes. Um, but the way God disciplines us, the way he disciplines his children is always for our good, for our benefit, not for his benefit, but for our benefit, for our good. And so it talks about how no discipline is pleasant at the time, but if it's applied consistently in the right way, it, it brings a harvest of righteousness so our goal needs to be for our child's sake. And so the discipline that we're providing for them needs to be for their good. And therefore, it needs to be consistent that they need to learn how to say no to themselves, to tell themselves no. But they'll never get there if they never have someone outside of them doing it first. 
you know, before a, a child can learn to be self-governed, they have to learn to be governed. And so that's why God gave them parents. And so it really is for our child's good and for their well-being that we are consistent with the discipline as God is with us and that we don't merely discipline them whenever it's convenient for us or whenever it seems right to us. Uh, we need to be consistent with the discipline and and the, the teaching and the coaching and, and the love and the affirmation and all of that that goes with it. Uh, we need to be consistent with that day in and day out, you know, not just when it is is convenient for us or or when we're being inconvenienced, then we respond. Right. So I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and that takes a relationship too, for your child. It's not just a, it's not just discipline, discipline, discipline. That's right. But it's That's right. engaging their hearts. When it comes to vaccines, most mothers and fathers want to know facts, not others' opinions. Jackie wished she had known more facts when she went in for her first well baby visit. Because Jackie strongly promotes parental choice, she felt led to write a short treatise with personal facts. This vaccination ebook is pretty concise to allow you, the parent, to read, research into the studies she shares, and come up with your own decisions. Jackie's sincere desire is that you and your children thrive, and so she presents to you the vaccination ebook free of charge. Simply go to deeprootsathome.com forward slash vital dash info dash ebook forward slash. That's deeprootsathome.com forward slash vital dash info dash ebook forward slash. So how can we gain influence in our children's lives so that they will desire to learn from us? So it's not just a, a constant discipline, but, but it's an actual relationship building. Yeah, the two primary forces in developing influence, which I talk about in my book, are time and affirmation. So uh, in the, the Raising Them Up Parenting for, for Christians book, uh, I talk about the importance of time, but I also talk about the importance of affirmation. And there's another book that I'll mention as well uh, that is is kind of a follow-up to it um, that's called Pitching a Fit, Overcoming Angry and Stressed Out Parenting. And there's a chapter in here where I, I have a whole chapter on the power of affirmation. Because the most important uh, way to influence another person is to spend time with them. And I sometimes say that we as Christian parents need to spend more time with our children than anyone else. If you want to be the most influential person in your child's life, then you need to spend more time and sheer hours with them than any other person in their life. And you need to affirm them with positive encouragement more than anyone else in their life. Uh, because children crave that. And when they don't get that positive encouragement and affirmation from their parents, they look for it from other sources. And those other sources are often not positive. I mean, right. it could be right. at the very least, it's not you. So yeah. it, it could be that, you know, a, a friend or a teacher or a boyfriend or a girlfriend yeah. or heaven forbid, a street gang or a cult, you know, maybe the ones who actually get the influence over your child because the child's not finding the affirmation at home and they find it with this other person or this other group. And then those people have more influence than the parents. So that's why it's so important for us to make sure you have the time. Homeschooling obviously provides that better than any other context because your children are home with you, but it's so easy to be stressed out about outcomes, right? 
we're we're pretty concerned about their academic performance and we're concerned about uh, how they look to the neighbors or to our in-laws or whatever, and are they on grade point and so forth. But a lot of parents, um, and, and more specifically mothers, because mothers are often the ones that are there during the day doing the homeschooling and the, the child training and so forth, that um, they put so much pressure on themselves to have perfect children. And they put so much pressure then on their children that everybody hates the experience. The mothers hate it. They're miserable. They're stressed out. The children hate it. And so this context of the child being at home with the parent, uh, which should be a good thing, becomes counterproductive because the, the parent, in this case, usually the mother, is making the whole scenario miserable for everybody, not even realizing that she's the thermostat that sets the temperature for how everybody else behaves. Now, dads, I always say, are, are the real big thermostat in the family, and we have a lot of power that even if we're not there during the day, you know, we come home and we bring stress from the job and from work and our boss, you know, and our boss may yell at us and uh, chew us out and we can't do anything about it because he's the boss, right? So what do we do? We internalize that. We come home, we take out our frustrations and stress on our wife, and then she has to go somewhere with that. So then she takes it out on the children and then they kind of, you know, take it out on the younger ones. You know, my, I, I always joke and say, this is why every family needs to have a cat. Uh, so that the youngest one has some somebody to take out their frustrations on. <laughs> um, that's a joke. Uh, I don't need PETA to call me and file a lawsuit. I'm just kidding. Uh, but but this is, you know, this is what happens in a family, right? And then you just have this environment where everybody is just stressed out. And so that's why we wrote the book, uh, Pitching a Fit, Overcoming Angry and Stressed Out Parenting, to really deal with those issues of, okay, let's say you've taken the step and your children are home with you, but how do you make sure that this isn't something that everybody just hates? How do you make sure this is something where it's it's positive interaction and that you have the right balance of affirmation and encouragement to go along with the correction and discipline that is sometimes necessary? And, and if I could even add, um, being at home doesn't necessarily, like having those those many, many, many hours in the home with your child doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be um, present there and affirming their children and pouring into their lives the way that you should be. I mean, like you mentioned, you're so stressed and maybe, maybe, um, maybe taken up with social media, taken up mm -hmm. with, um, or just, just the busyness of life. Just the fact that, oh, I've got to keep this bathroom clean. Oh, I've got to get the laundry done. And so your child might be there present with you, but are you mentally and in your heart engaged with your child those hours you know, that's a big thing as well, I think, for us as moms. Yeah, I saw a mom post on Facebook not long ago, and she said, uh, I just realized I've been on Facebook for the last seven hours, and my husband is about to come home. I need to get off here and make it look like I did something today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, you're right that it's just simply keeping your children home doesn't necessarily mean that you are being proactive in discipling them. And so my my goal, whenever I talk about homeschooling, people often think of, oh, it's just taking your child out of a brick and mortar school and you know having them sit in a house or, or do academics in a house. Um, that's not my definition of homeschooling. My definition of homeschooling is parenting. Yes. Um, with academics, right? Academics are one tool in the parenting toolbox that you use to prepare your child for life. And so you're going to use some academics, but really homeschooling is equal to relationship and parenting. Right. Right. And so our goal is that we want parents to disciple their children uh, and to develop a relationship with them, not merely keep them home from school. 
Right. And so it's it's important to kind of define terms nowadays because I think years ago it was kind of understood if you said homeschooling that that's what you meant by it. Nowadays, a lot of parents have no concept of that. They've never even considered that as a possibility or like as a as a definition for what homeschooling is. Right. So let's talk a little bit about teen years. You know, everybody has that dreaded the teen years. I remember when I was a teenager, young teenager, um, my, my, we had some friends and they called my parents up and said, can we talk to Jenny? Because our, because she doesn't seem to be rebelling at this point. And we're just wondering, is it a given that as soon as my child turns a teenager, we're going to go through this horrible, horrible experience. And they, you know, and so, um, and, and that's not to undermine the fact that sometimes teen, the teen years are very, very rough, very, very rough for some people. Um, but but what can we do for those difficult years? What are the changes that you suggest parents parents make as they shift from raising young children to teens that can make that a, a more easier and smooth transition? I have a section in Raising Them Up where I talk about shifting from a parenting approach or method or paradigm of control, which is actually necessary in the early years, the toddler years and the, the early elementary years to more of a model of influence. And I don't have time to explain what that all looks like here. I flesh it, flesh it out in the book, but um, we have to, to shift the parenting approach. But if you don't have the authority established in the toddler years and the early childhood years, it becomes very difficult to shift to an influence model um, when your children are teenagers. And what I see a lot of times is that that parents tend to raise their two-year-olds and three-year-olds as though they're little adults um, on an, an equal emotional and mental level with the parents. Um, and then when their child's 15, 16 years old, they start parenting them as though they're toddlers. And the, the whole thing is backwards and it doesn't work and it backfires. And so you have to establish authority and expect obedience. And that's a word that a lot of um, millennial parents chafe against that word but the bible says that children are to obey their parents in the lord for this is right and whenever you find yourself saying yeah but i don't know if i agree with that well when you disagree with god one of you has to shift and change their mind and it won't be god i promise you so god has an expectation that children are supposed to obey their parents in the lord for this is right if you don't establish that in the early years then you set yourself up for huge battles and conflicts in the teen years, and it's so much more difficult. Um, I have successfully raised 10 two-year-olds in a row. I'm working on number 11, and I'm so much more confident now with raising two-year-olds than I was with my first couple, because with the first couple, I was all stressed out about it. Like They would have these moments of defiance and rebellion and and I, there's this contest of the wills, and, and I would feel threatened by that, and I would feel like, oh, I have to show dominance here because um, what if my child wins and defeats me and so forth? You know, Now I have enough experience as a parent. I've been through this long enough that when my 11th two-year-old is, is throwing a fuss uh, and is telling me no and saying she doesn't want to obey me, I, I'm not stressed out about it. I'm not fearful. I grin to myself, and I say, you know what? I'm the parent you're the child. This is not my first rodeo. Um, I know that I will outlast you, that in this contest of the wills, I'm going to win. 
Right. Um, and so I just have a, a calm confidence about it. Right. And so I don't have to yell and I don't have to go through histrionics. I, I know and that sense that. Yeah, that I have to be composed in this and that that I will win the contest of the wills here. And so that same kind of thing, I think, happens within the teen years. Now, I'm newer at that, you know, and, and still kind of walking through that. But I, I think that's something that over time you realize, like, one of us needs to be the adult in this situation. And I talk about this, I think, in the Pitch in a Fit book, that when the parent is screaming at their teenager uh, and they've lost control, if you think about just even what's being said in that phrase, if you've lost control as a parent, that means someone else has it. Mm -hmm. and, and if your child, whether they're two or 16, has control in that moment, that's not a good thing. And children are really good button pushers. And sometimes teenagers are too. And they know how to give get you to give up control of the situation to not be the authority figure to not be the adult in the room and then they can sort of sit back and smirk and be like oh look at you look at you having a meltdown look at you having a te temper tantrum uh and they love that they thrive on that and so there's a sense in which we as adults have to remember the dynamic that we have to remain the adults in the situation um and and have the confidence that we will win in this situation because we're the parent and um, and it, it's difficult and it tests you, but I think that's where if you haven't laid the groundwork in the early years, you got a lot bigger fight on your hands in those teen years. And so many times parents just feel like they want to be their two-year-old's buddy. Yes. And so they don't want to be a heavy-handed authority figure in their life or their three-year-old and tell them no and insist on it and insist that if they tell their three-year-old to do something that the three-year-old must follow through and obey them they're like well but i want my three-year-old to like me well what that does is it just shows the three-year-old that they don't have to obey you they don't have to respect you and when they're 15 or 16 and they're six foot three and weigh 195 pounds and they're laying on your couch and you say hey it's tuesday night it's time to take the trash out and they say do it yourself how are you going to make that child obey you right. and it's a much bigger challenge at that at that point because you have to, you have to have gained their hearts because by the time they're 16, 17, 18, you know, the rules, the rule, they have to want to also follow those rules. You know, um, my husband and I had a very strict courtship and with our own children, we have had less of the, what less of the strict, strict, strict courtship that my husband and I had, but more of a very, um, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's a, it's a hybrid because it's not the world's dating as well. But um, we have a relationship of trust with our children that had to be built when they were five and six, seven years old, um, that, that that trust is there now. Because at, at 17, 18 years old, if they want to go off and do what's against the rules, they're going to do that. Um, you know, they have to have that, that foundation has to be laid where they also want to be under the, the guidance and um, the direction of their parents. And so being able to have that establishment very early on, very young, that doesn't mean though that, you know, for those families that maybe, maybe they haven't had that, there's grace there. The Lord gives grace to be able to, you know, you can recapture your teen's heart, even if you're later in the game with the situation. 
but it's getting at their hearts. It's not just like you mentioned early in the conversation. It's not even just keeping all the rules. It's getting at their heart. And, and um, sometimes we can get so derailed by focusing on the rules that we're actually losing the hearts of our kids. In these troubling times, it's no secret that we are being censored. It's getting harder and harder to spread the truth. Facebook is throttling us, and we don't know how much longer we will be there. Here are a few things you can do to stay in touch with Deep Roots at Home. Firstly, sign up for our newsletter. Jackie sends out exclusive, important content to her readers. The link will be in the show notes. Number two, consider making Deep Roots at Home your homepage in your browser. Number three, print your favorite Deep Roots at Home articles and place them in a binder to have on hand in case of emergency. And finally, follow us on other social media channels. We are now on Telegram and Gab and soon Truth Social. Jackie's greatest desire is that God would be glorified through these dark times. And also uh, them embracing the gospel is a game changer. Absolutely. Because when the Holy Spirit is at work inside of them, renewing them and regenerating them, then they have different inclinations and desires. So they're not perfect. They're still going to make mistakes. They're still going to sin, but they don't want to. They have a different set of desires and inclinations. And so it's a completely different game than when they are self-willed, self-absorbed, when they are fully sitting on the throne of self uh, in their life. And, and I know this is a tricky thing for parents theologically, but I think so many times within our evangelical church culture, uh, children are manipulated into praying very formulaic prayers at six years old, four years old, nine years old. And parents put a lot of stock in that and are like, oh, but I know my child is saved because they prayed the sinner's prayer when they were six years old or whatever. But, you know, when I talk to them about their 15, 16 year old, they're like, they hate everyone. They hate us. They hate their siblings. They're mean. They're abusive to their younger siblings. They're foul mouth. They're watching pornography. They keep threatening to run away. They don't want to go to church. They don't read their Bible. They roll their eyes during Bible time. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, like, I, it doesn't sound to me like somebody who loves God. Right. It doesn't sound to me like somebody whose heart has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. It sounds to me like they need the gospel. Yeah. And so I think there's a sense in which sometimes as parents, um, you know, we need to be honest with ourselves and say, you know, have we really seen a change? And, you know, I have 11 children and some of my children have done that. They've responded to the gospel and have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, you see a difference. You do, right. you see a real marked difference in their life and their inclinations. And, you know, I, I have a 15 year old daughter that every morning, uh, seven o'clock, she's sitting in the living room with her Bible and she's memorizing scripture and nobody's making her do that. Nobody's making her get up. Nobody's, you know, she just loves Jesus. And, uh, you know, you see what a difference that makes in somebody's life when they get it on the inside of them. Yeah. And that's something we can't do for our children. But what we can do is try to, you know, keep the bad stuff out, put the good stuff in, and then just look for every opportunity that we can to constantly point our children to Christ, not even to us. We're not the final source for our right. children, but to point them to Christ and to, to show them their great need for Christ. And we do that, I think, by by living in that and walking in that ourselves each day in our own personal lives, in our own walk, our own example. 
Um, and my children need to know that dad is keenly aware of his need for Christ and that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And also, uh, and that, oh, go ahead. And that in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Right. You know, that, that I have nothing to offer somebody in myself that has value that's not, that doesn't come from Jesus. Yeah. Children are keenly aware, keenly aware if there's hypocrisy in us for sure. Um, and I think, again, going back to what you talked about, I think being willing to sit down with teens and to show them scripturally where these guidelines are coming from. It's no longer that time to just say, it's because I told you so. You know, let them let them ask questions. Let them reason back and forth with you and show them this is what the Lord says. This is not daddy's rules. It's not mommy's rules. This is what King Jesus says. And the time that when you begin that is really in those tweener years, uh -huh. you know, the 11s, 12s, 13s. I see too many parents doing it at, at two to four, uh -huh. where all of a sudden this two to four year old is allowed to negotiate with the parents because, well, we want to respect them and we want to treat them like they're a little adult. Big mistake. And, you know, I know that younger parents uh, push back when I say that and they chafe at that. Um, I'm just going to humbly submit to you. I have 11 children. And, you know, the, the parents who push back on that and say, well, but I want to treat my two year old and four year old like they're a little adult and that they are on my level and that they can, you know, make all the same kinds of decisions that I make and so forth. Yeah, but you don't like how your children behave. You know, oftentimes they write me because it's like my six year old is out of control, uh, won't obey me. I can't make them do anything. And I'm really frustrated. What do I do? And when I say, well, you have to be the authority figure in the relationship right. and you have to expect obedience from your child and you have to discipline your child when they don't obey, when they defy you, they push back on that and they're resistant to that. And I just want to say, but how is this working for you? Right. Like if this, if you were happy with the outcome of your approach, you wouldn't have called me. Exactly. You know, we wouldn't be having this conversation if, if you were really pleased with what your approach is getting you. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think there needs to be a willingness on the part of young parents to realize that none of us know it all. Uh, none of us have it all figured out. And there is wisdom in seeking out people who have some experience, who have a track record. What, what I did as a young parent is I went to scripture first and foremost, because that's the final authority. But I also found families that had the kind of fruit that I wanted in their family. Again, not perfect because nobody's perfect. Nobody does everything right. But, you know, when somebody has eight children and they're all walking with God and they're all as adults, like strong Christians and raising their children in the fear of the Lord, like that was one of my mentors, you know, was a dad who had eight children who were all believers and they were all raising their children in the fear of the Lord. I asked that guy a lot of questions. Right. You know, and I was willing to assume he knew more. He knew more than I did. And I would say, how do you do this? And how did you get here? And if he said something, I thought to myself, well, I don't know about that. I would go, yeah, but I have a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old with behavioral problems. <laughs> and this guy has some fruit. He has some success. I might want to assume he knows more than I do. And so I think we really need to value godly older mentors in the church, uh, people who, who have walked the road and, and have the right kind of fruit. Uh, I remember one homeschool conference speaker that I, of course, will leave unnamed years and years ago that went around and did uh, seminars on how to get your children to obey you instantly and joyously. 
uh, well, this guy had 10 children and nine of his 10 adult children wouldn't speak to him. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of person that I would seek out for advice and counsel. Yeah. Uh, so you you need to make sure the people giving you counsel really know what they're talking about. And one thing that I've found is that people tend to go today for advice to blogs and Facebook groups. And they just throw out questions of, I have a child that's doing this, give me advice. And yeah. you're getting like 300 pieces of contradictory advice from 300 different people that you know nothing about, most of whom are probably less qualified than you to address the topic. How is that helpful for you? <laughs> and so I think it's really good to uh, find and seek out people who who have some some fruit to their labors and uh, ask them, you know, how how have you done this? And I think that would be the scriptural model of the older ones teaching the younger ones. Thanks for joining us on the Deep Roots at Home podcast. We pray it has encouraged you in your walk with the Lord and as you serve your family. Could you do us a favor? If this has blessed you, could you help us spread the word by liking and sharing this podcast with your friends? And don't forget, we have lots of great links in the show notes that go along with today's podcast. See you next time.